Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And if you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me. We're going to read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. And this is what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So today is the first day of Advent, and if you're not familiar with that term, if you haven't grown up hearing Advent, um, in short, Advent means it's Christmas time, uh, but it's really more than that also. The word Advent comes from a Latin word that I think is pronounced Adventus. It's a dead language, so who really cares if I said it right? Um, but it comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And the season of Advent is something that the church has used for centuries to focus our hearts and our minds on the coming or arrival of Christ. And we celebrate the coming of Christ at Advent from three different perspectives. The first perspective is the physical birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. And that's probably the most obvious one because that's kind of what we associate with Christmas even if you don't believe in it, even if you didn't grow up celebrating it that way, we all kind of get nativity scenes and Jesus in a manger and things like that. But we also celebrate the coming of Christ or Advent from the perspective of his coming again. And in the Greek, Greek is the language that the New Testament is written in, that Latin word for Advent is translated parousia. And parousia referred to the visit of a king or an emperor to a town or a village, and there would usually be a public celebration. But the context and the, the meaning of parousia all changed with Jesus, because in the New Testament, parousia refers to the return of Christ. So for example, in James, it says, uh, James 5 says, be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that word for coming is parousia, advent. Uh, it's the great Christian hope, the day that Christ will return and make all things new. It's what I always want to point people toward. That is why 
we do what we do. It's not just so we can uh, come here and have a social club or feel good about some things that we do. It's all headed somewhere. So in the Advent season, we look forward to that day. But there's a third perspective of the coming of Christ that we celebrate, and that's the coming of Christ into the hearts of those who hope and believe in him. And this is just as real as the birth of Jesus Christ was. It's an important reality. So it's my hope that this Christmas season, this Advent, that we'll celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ from all three of those perspectives. And if Jesus Christ is someone that you don't know, or maybe you struggle to even believe that he's someone who can be known, I hope and pray, and I mean that, that you will come to know Jesus as your king the way that I do. And Advent is such a special time of year that we're taking a break from our normal sermon series. We've been going through the book of Galatians, but for the next month, we're going to be going through sermons from the book of Isaiah. And uh, so since we're diving into a new book, I'm going to give you just the quickest introduction to Isaiah. Um, In the summer, we went through the minor prophets. Isaiah is one of the major prophets, which doesn't mean that Isaiah is more important than the minor prophets. It's simply talking about the length. Uh, Isaiah is one of the uh, longer Old Testament prophets. It has 66 chapters. And I have a timeline. You might remember this timeline from our Minor Prophets series. If you look at this timeline of the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that Isaiah was relatively early among the prophets. His prophetic ministry started about 740 years before Christ. And by that point, I don't know if you can read or not, but you'll see it starts with one single line and then it splits into two. There's a schism there. By the point that Isaiah is coming on the scene, Israel has already split into a northern and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is usually referred to as Judah or Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is usually referred to as Israel. So the very first verse in Isaiah says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So that tells us that Isaiah was in the southern kingdom of Judah, prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah was not well received in his day because he called his people to turn from their sin and warned them of judgment. That's not something that is fun or pleasant for anyone, but um, no one wanted to hear what Isaiah had to say. He prophesied lots of harsh judgment on Judah. And every single word that he predicted happened. And so since then, God's people have paid close attention because he says other things that were for the future. The book of Isaiah is uh, full of hope for future days, hope for redemption that will come through the Messiah, which means the anointed one. We would say the Christ who will be a suffering servant. And Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. In fact, the early church fathers often referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel, because even though he was writing about 750 years before Jesus Christ was born in a manger, he has lots to say about Jesus and the church and has very specific predictions about him that came to pass. So our reading today is from the sixth chapter of Isaiah, Um, but it's actually chronologically the very beginning of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. It's the story of his call. 
Um, the first five chapters serve as an overview, and chapter six takes us back to Isaiah's call. So we're going to go through these first eight verses. We're going to walk straight through them. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself three questions about these verses. What does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with Advent and Christmas time? And what does this have to do with me? So I want to start by looking at just the first clause of verse one. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, King Uzziah, I don't imagine that means much to any of us. So I'll just tell you quickly, King Uzziah was king of Judah for 52 years. And uh, you can read more about him in 2 Chronicles 26, but it tells us that he was actually mostly a good king. That was rare. Most of the kings of Judah and Israel were pretty rotten and they were idolatrous and murderous and all these other things. But King Uzziah was one of the better kings, but his, uh, well, and and he ruled for a long time. He started when he was 16 and during his reign, there was a lot of prosperity and there was peace. So people liked him. People always like a leader when they're prospering and things are going well, but his story ends weird because in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, it says, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, this may not mean anything to you, but he wasn't supposed to go into the temple of the Lord and offer incense. That was for specific people of a specific tribe, and he was not one of those. So the Lord struck him with leprosy, and he had it until the day that he died. And ironically, since he went in the temple and did this thing he wasn't supposed to do, he was afflicted with a disease that meant he was no longer allowed to go into the temple. So that's King Uzziah. And it's kind of odd that Isaiah Isaiah links his vision of the Lord with King Uzziah's death, because usually if you're going to anchor dates, it's going to be someone's birth. He could have just as easily said, this was when King so-and-so started ruling, but instead he links it to a death. But I want you to consider what the nation would be like after the king of 52 years dies. They were mourning for one, They feared what the new leader would be like. They feared that there would be political instability. And at this point, the major world power was Assyria, and they were growing more and more powerful. In fact, shortly after this, they would take over the northern kingdom of Israel. And at this point, Judah was already paying tribute to the king in Assyria. So they were afraid maybe in this transition of power, it was going to leave them vulnerable to attack. It was a time of great uncertainty in the world. And on top of that, Isaiah has already made it abundantly clear that even in Judah, among the people who were supposed to be God's chosen people, where they had the the temple and the priest and all these holy things and holy places, they weren't following God at all. I told you those first five chapters are kind of a summary. And Isaiah 3.8 is a good summary of the spiritual condition of Judah. It says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. So can you imagine if you lived in a time when you were uncertain what kind of leader you were going to have? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you lived in a time when other nations who were hostile toward you were growing in power? 
Or let's say you lived in a time where you lived in a supposedly Christian nation, but you looked around and it didn't really seem like your nation was Christian at all. Can you imagine what that would be like? See, even though there's close to 3,000 years separating us from Isaiah, the darkness and the hopelessness that he was up against is not so different from our own experience, which is why it's important this morning that we have literally a light shining in the darkness. Today, our, our Advent candle is the candle of hope. We need that. But in verse 1, I see, Isaiah sees someone other than King Uzziah on a throne. In verse 5, it says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So with that in mind, let's read the whole first verse now. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, and now you know who that is, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So after a flawed, ailing king, Isaiah saw the true king sitting on the throne. The Lord is high and lifted up. And this is a physical description. Um, Archaeologists have found uh, ancient Near Eastern thrones, and they literally were built on pillars so that they would be high and lifted up. And we can read the description of Solomon's throne and know that there were steps leading up to it. So it was common in the ancient Near East to have thrones that were high and lifted up. But it's also uh, a language. The, the Hebrew words high and lifted up were words of exaltation. And it's really not any different Today, we talk about people, you know, moving up the ranks of a company or he's at the very top. Um, We tend to think of high as exalted. But next, Isaiah tells us that the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, when we see a king on a throne, we expect that he's in a palace or a castle or something like that. But Isaiah tells us that the Lord is in the temple. And uh, many scholars, we can't know for sure, but many scholars believe that Isaiah, when he had this vision, was actually in the temple in Jerusalem, which was the physical place in Jerusalem where they would go and offer sacrifices and do different things. Um, But it's clear throughout scripture, and especially in this passage, that when we read about the temple in Jerusalem, it was just a symbolic model pointing to the reality of God's dwelling place. It's sort of a model of what is God's throne room actually like. And it's like if you go to Disney Springs or something and you see a Lego exhibit, you can be blown away by like a gigantic Lego Millennium Falcon, but no matter how detailed it is, that thing's not gonna fly. And that's what the temple was. But here Isaiah gets a glimpse of the Lord on his actual throne in the actual temple and the train of the Lord's robe fills the temple. And so here's what you need to know about the train of a robe. People of nobility had long trains to symbolize their wealth and their honorable status. So in those days, fabric was very expensive Labor to make garments was very expensive. So to just have the money and the time to have extra fabric that could just kind of trail behind you and to say, I've got so much extra money, I can pay someone to make this long train. Um, 
I've got so much fabric, I can just kind of drag it on the dirty ground behind me. That was a symbol of honor and status. Uh, trains on bridal gowns is what we normally think of. That was really only a thing for royalty until about 100, 150 years ago. As technology has advanced, now kind of anybody can afford to have a long train. But in those days, that was not co common at all. And trains were impractical, too, because you can't really move much around them. So it's another way of saying, I'm in a position of honor, and I don't have to labor. So the only people that you were going to see with long trains were people in uh, royal positions. So a train that fills the temple means this person has extravagant wealth and honor. And this scene is hard for us to picture, but lots of artists... Um, over the centuries have taken a stab at what Isaiah may have seen. I googled lots of these, but I picked one that's more modern. Um, I've got one here that you can see, and it's actually digital, digital art by an artist named Ron Cantrell. Um, I think this is gorgeous, and um, I feel like I never need to do drugs because I can just look at that and imagine that that's probably what it's like. And what, the thing that's in that I've seen in common among uh, most of the art that I've looked at is it's usually very surreal and otherworldly, but also it always fails to capture all of the elements that Isaiah describes. And honestly, I learned so much studying for this. I wish I could do like a deleted scenes that you can go like watch later. Like here's the stuff Mark wanted to geek out on, but didn't have time. Uh, but it's interesting, isn't it, that Isaiah, I'm off my notes, this is bad, but Isaiah gives all these descriptions of things around the presence of God, but he never tells us exactly what God looks like. Isn't that interesting? And in John 1, it says that no one has seen God, and so um, this is a vision of God, and yet it's something that God showed him. Um, it's something that's hard for us to grasp. But even in this, it's a beautiful depiction, but it's like, I don't really see a train of the robe. Like, I don't really see a throne. I'm, I see some wingy things, but I'm not sure. Like, nothing can really capture what Isaiah talks about. So let's move on, and we'll see some more weird junk that he saw. So uh, look at verse 2. It says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two, he covered his face, and it's interesting, it says it's a he, um, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So seraphim means seraphs. That's how we would say it. In English, if we want to make something plural, for the most part, you add an S. In Hebrew, if you want to make something, something plural, you add that im to the end of it. So like cherubim, seraphim, that is just plural. So the ser it says, the seraphim stood above the Lord while the Lord sat on the throne. That doesn't mean that they were lifted higher than the Lord. It means the Lord sits. The fact that they're standing over him means they are serving him or waiting on him. And again, this is hard to picture, but they had six wings. We only picture things with two wings. Um, in the ancient Near East, to cover your feet symbolized humility because then, just like now, feet are gross. So if you're wanting to be humble, you, you keep your feet covered. They covered their eyes because they can't bear to look at the glory of the Lord directly. 
Even though their job is to hang out in the presence of the Lord, they don't look at him directly. And with two wings, they flew. And here's one artist's rendering of what a seraph may look like. Um, I feel like this is a pretty good one. If you look at some of the old like Italian and Spanish art, it's just like really ripped dudes doing things like this. I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's it. I don't know. Um, but the Hebrew word for seraphim means burning ones. Okay. So some people think that with the wings and the radiance, they might've resembled a flame and that's possible, but I'm going to, I'm going to get weird and throw another possibility out there. Um, you remember the story from numbers where the Israelites are in the wilderness and they start complaining about how things were better back in Egypt when they were slaves. And we read it and we're like, you thought it was better when you were slaves. And then God is like mad at them because they're grumbling and these poisonous snakes come and start biting them. Anybody remember that story? Well, the word for those poisonous snakes is seraphim. And everywhere else in the Old Testament that we see seraphim, it's like serpents, snakes. In fact, in Isaiah 14, 29, just a few chapters later, this is what it says. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, which means snakes, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Flying, fiery serpent. Guess what word that is? Seraph. It's the same word. So there are a lot of different opinions on this, but some scholars believe we should picture something more like a flying serpent with feet. So I just want you to go with me here. What would a fiery serpent with feet and wings look like? It'd look like a dragon. I don't know. I mean... We can't know, but maybe there were dragons flying around the throne. I couldn't find that artist's depiction, but. <laughs> and what were the seraphs, seraphim or seraphs doing? Verse three says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Hebrew, repetition is used to express superlatives, like this is the very best, or totality, like this is all of it. This is the one place in all of Hebrew scripture that something is not repeated, but it is threefold repetition. It emphasizes totality. Holiness is not just something that is a description of the Lord. It's who the Lord is. And because of this encounter with the Lord, the name that Isaiah most commonly gives God throughout this prophet if you read it, is Holy One of Israel. That term is in scripture about 40 times and the majority of them are from Isaiah. And the seraphim declare, the whole earth is full of his glory. And again, it's a statement of totality. If there's glory on the earth, it is the glory of the Holy One. I want you to think about that. If there is glory on the earth, it's the glory of the Holy One. We try to claim glory for ourselves, right? We attribute glory to the achievements of men and women or to the beauty of nature. But if there's glory on the earth, it is the glory of the Holy One. 
And because the earth is full of his glory, we can't experience the earth without encountering the glory of God. We can't. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says, no one has an excuse. The heavens declare his glory. So though the seraphim cover their eyes because they can't bear to gaze directly at the Lord, they're not repelled by him. They're drawn to him and they serve him and they declare his totality, the totality of his holiness and his glory. And listen to what verse four says. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The voice of him who called, it's not the Lord's voice. This is just the seraphim declaring who the Lord is. It was so great that it shook the pillars in the temple. Except here, instead of temple, it says the house was filled with smoke. Again, emphasizing that this is the dwelling place of the Lord. And the Hebrew word for smoke here, um, you hear temple and smoke, and you might think incense, but that's actually a different word. The Hebrew word for smoke here is one that's associated with God's presence. Um, In Exodus when Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, uh, Mount Sinai, it says, was wrapped in smoke and the whole mountain trembled. That's the picture here. Smoke simply from the presence of the Lord. And I also want to point out that there's another threefold repetition here in Isaiah. The word fill is used three times. The train of the robe filled the temple. The earth is full of the Lord's glory And now the house is filled with smoke. So the Lord's glory and presence are total. And although we can't know exactly what to picture when we think of the seraphim, one thing that is curious is that every time the seraphim are mentioned in scripture, it accompanies judgment or punishment. So this probably would have been a terrifying thing to behold. And we see that it was from Isaiah's response. In verse five, this is what it says. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me for I am lost. It's also translated I am undone, or I am ruined. In the presence of the Lord, Isaiah is exposed and he realizes that he is the opposite of holy. He is unclean. And the terror he felt was not the terror like if you see a tornado off in the distance, although there is something awe-inspiring about the power, and I can't contend with that, But if you see a tornado in the distance, your instinct is, I'm going to run, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to hide in my cellar, I might make it. I might escape this thing. Maybe there's a chance. But here with Isaiah, he says, I am ruined because there is no escape. This is what it is to encounter the presence of the Lord in your uncleanliness. 
Where can you go when his presence and his holiness fills the earth, fills the entire place that you're at? This is what it's like to encounter the Lord, not because he isn't good, but because he's so good and I'm not. There's an interesting fact about Isaiah that I didn't mention before. The first verse tells us that his father was Amaz. Amaz was the brother of King Uzziah's father. In other words, King Uzziah and Isaiah were cousins. So King Uzziah's death would have been a profound personal loss for Isaiah, but it also probably means that Isaiah came from wealth and power and affluence, and it probably means that he thought pretty highly of himself. The late Jack Miller, which um, I never had the honor of meeting, but some of you have, some of you have read his books and heard his sermons. He taught that Isaiah is so thrown off by the whole encounter because he went to the temple just like he had thousands of times before, and the last person he expected to see was God. Can you relate to that? You go to church, and the last thing you expect is to have an experience of God. It's curious that Isaiah doesn't just say that he's unclean, but he says he's a man of unclean lips. And there are all kinds of scholarly studies on what this is about. But I wonder if Isaiah hadn't been uh, galvanizing into the temple with his entourage saying like, oh man, I hope Avram isn't preaching again this Sunday or Saturday, I guess. Snooze fest. Or don't even get me started on the choir master. All he wants to do is those old boring psalms. Can he please do some new songs. I, um, I'm leaving my notes again, which isn't always a good idea, but here we go. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. Have I ever been in the presence of glory and just had that like, oh shoot, I am lost feeling. Uh, we just got back from Tennessee. That's where I'm from. And I don't know if you understand the geography of Tennessee, but there's not an ocean next to it. So I didn't grow up surfing. But when Brandy and I moved here 10 years ago, uh, I started going to the coast. I have a good friend who lives in Satellite Beach and he has a bunch of boards and he like works for a surf company and is really good at surfing and just has like selfies with him and Kelly Slater and stuff like that. And he started teaching me to surf and... um, and I was never good. I'm not good. Um, but one day he, we were, we went to satellite beach and he's given me his longboard That's like so big. It would take an idiot not to get up on this thing. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I was not good. It's, it was kind of like watching a, a baby learn to walk, except not cute at all. It was just like, like a lot of that. But I, I took this ride for like, six seconds. And I was stoked out of my mind. And I was like, did you see that? And my friend Steve was like, yeah, great job. And Brandy's like, woohoo. And um, so there were some other people there that I didn't know. And they're like, killer Mark. Awesome. Good to meet you. They left. And um, Steve was like, do you know who that was? And I was like, yeah, that's CJ. You introduced me, CJ. And he's like, yeah, that's CJ Hobgood. And I was like, okay, who's CJ Hobgood? This is 2011. He's like, yeah, he won the world championship in 2008. And I was like, so you're telling me he wasn't impressed when I just took that six second ride like this. Um, 
I Googled him when I got home and the first thing I saw was this YouTube video of him surfing one of those 25 foot waves where there's just like jet skis and helicopters all around because he's probably gonna die. And that's just like what he's paid to do for fun. Um, anyway, Isaiah, this was not his first time in a throne room. He was probably doted on himself because of his wealth and influence. And as the cousin of a king, he was immune to thrones and authority and probably even took them for granted. But now he stood in the presence of the king of kings. And he felt small and silly and humble. Far more small and silly and humble than I felt after I realized who I'd been surfing in front of. But it's the encounter that he needed because as God's chosen prophet, He had known wealth and influence and being the cool cousin of the king, but he was going to experience rejection and suffering in a way he never could have imagined. I think of another experience of the glory of God in the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John saw just a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. They went on top of a mountain and they saw Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah and they hear the very voice of God. And that's the mountaintop experience they needed because they, when they went down that mountain, they were going to see their Lord arrested and humiliated and executed. And they were going to wonder if maybe it had all been a lie. But they had the encounter that they needed because they needed to see the glory of Jesus to prepare them for the darkest weekend of their lives. So what does this throne room with flying dragons and smoke, what does this have to do with Jesus? Read verses six and seven with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah got the encounter that he needed because he needed to be humbled and see his own sin before he could grasp the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. Because when he expected the angel of death, he got the flaming one coming at him with a coal that he was sure was going to consume him, but it made him holy. God cleansed Isaiah of his unholiness so that he could be in the presence of the king. So I asked you to ponder as we've gone through this, what this has to do with Jesus, what does it have to do with Advent, what does it have to do with you? And here's what it has to do with Jesus. In John chapter 12, Jesus teaches the people, this is after the triumphal entry, and he predicts his own death. And just as Isaiah had predicted, he says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And that's what Isaiah said was going to happen to the Messiah. But the people reject Jesus and tell him he can't possibly be the Messiah because they know that the Messiah is going to live forever. But read with me what the gospel writer John says after this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things 
because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Look at that last sentence. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw whose glory? Jesus. Isaiah spoke of whom? He spoke of Jesus. Who was the holy king on the throne that Isaiah encountered? It was Jesus. What does this have to do with Advent? As we anticipate the coming of the king, we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. And I know that you understand this, that he is the king. I know you can get that intellectually, but none of us can really get it. Because we picture a baby in some straw with a donkey grinning at him. But we can't, we cannot, should not separate the birth of a helpless baby in the most humble of beginnings from the presence of a king high and lifted up with radiance and glory that fills the earth. The problem is that we don't really take Jesus seriously. We like him, but we think he's some simple archaic wisdom teacher, just kind of like a goofy old uncle that just wears sweats and crocs all the time. And it's like, he's a good guy, but he can't possibly understand the pressure that I'm under. I live in a fast paced world with far more technology and responsibility than Jesus could get. How could he possibly have anything relevant to say to me? What does this have to do with you? Jesus is the king, high and lifted up, whose glory fills the earth. Do you think he can't understand your smartphone? Do you think you have more stress than he can bear? The king, high and lifted up? The birth of Christ shows us the depths to which the holy king is willing to go to love you and reconcile you to himself. And what do you have to do to receive this? Nothing. Just believe it. Did Isaiah do anything to bring about his vision of the Lord? Nope. Did he do anything to make himself clean? No. If anything, he was probably cowering and trying to back away from what he received. When we encounter the true king, we are very aware of our unworthiness and our instinct may be to hide. It's like, if you have that dream, I have this dream like every six months where I'm like back in high school and I'm walking down the hall and inevitably I'm like, yeah, I'm not wearing clothes. This is the worst thing ever. You know, like you've had some version of that dream. Our instinct is to hide. But when we encounter Christ in our uncleanliness, if we believe in him, we find that we're clothed with his righteousness. And if you read Isaiah 6 and take it seriously and you're blown away by his holiness, then be blown away that because of Jesus, it's your holiness too. It's your holiness too. Now we come to the very end of our passage and I'm actually almost done now. Read with me verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. See, before Isaiah couldn't bear to look at the Lord, he couldn't join in the song of the seraphim. 
all he could say was, I'm lost. I'm ruined. This is the end. But now he hears the voice of the Lord and he even dares to speak. And what's the first thing that Isaiah ever says to the Lord? Here I am. Send me. The guy who moments before this thought he was a big deal because he was a cousin of the king who cared a lot about what people thought about him. He was really concerned with his own glory and his own influence and his own power. But when he's seen what true power and glory is, he says, send me. Not because he owes God one, because there's nothing he could possibly do to repay God. Isaiah goes because he was a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And he thinks, if God did this for me, maybe, just maybe, he could do this for my friends and my family and my nation. If this king of glory is the good God who would make me clean, even though I did nothing to deserve it, maybe he will give this gift to others. He's not worried about his own power and glory anymore. He, like the seraphim, wants to shake the foundations with the song of the holiness of God. And if we get just a glimpse of the glory and the goodness of Christ the King, we won't give a rip what other people think about us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you knew what it was like to be loved by the King? Who else could we impress? If, he, if the king of kings loves you, who are you trying to impress? What can man do to me? As followers of Christ, we can stand before the king and say, I know him. He's my friend. He's my brother. And I pray that each of you will encounter the Lord that Isaiah encountered this Advent. It won't be like Isaiah's encounter, but it'll be the encounter that you need. Wherever you find yourself, that's what we all desperately need. And I just want to remind you in closing that an encounter with the Holy One of Israel is an encounter with Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Holy One of Israel, there is not one of us in this room in our own strength who deserves not to be on our face right now. I don't deserve to stand before your family and proclaim your name and your word. But because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his grace changes everything. Lord, you have revealed yourself. May you continue to reveal yourself through your spirit, through your word. And may we willingly glorify you with our lips, with our hands, with our hearts. And we pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.